Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm your host, Maeve, and today our story starts at the 2008 Beijing Summer Olympics with the debut of the Speedo LZR Racer, a swimsuit so hydrodynamic barely any record could hold. Swimmers would spend up to 20 minutes squeezing the full body suits on. It was made of advanced materials that compressed the swimmer's body into a more dynamic shape, lifted the swimmer's hips to reduce drag, and offered three times the compression at half the weight of other swimsuits. The result? 42 world records were broken at the Beijing Olympics, 38 of them by swimmers wearing the LZR racer. Michael Phelps, who was one of the suit's testers, won eight medals that year, all of them gold. But the honeymoon couldn't last. By 2009, FINA, the governing body of international swimming, banned these high-tech suits. In the 17 months between their debut and FINA's ruling in July 2009, more than 130 world records had fallen. It sparked a conversation normally reserved for steroids and drugs. When have we pushed the limits too far? Well, so, so as an innovator, an engineer, or a scientist, or, you know, however I wear my hat, um, you know, I feel it's my job to, uh, my job is to, to, to make the best technology possible, right? And it's somebody else's job to figure out whether or not that ought to be part of the sport. That's Kim Blair. He's the founder of Sports Technology and Engineering Consulting, and he's an advisor to the Sports Technology and Education at MIT program. Basically, he knows his way around the sports technology industry. And to him, the Speedo controversy represents a key relationship in the sports manufacturing ecosystem. There's this virtuous circle in all kinds of professional sports where there's, there's the sponsor and the fan and the athlete, right? And so the fan wants to observe the athlete perform. Uh, the athlete needs the sponsor uh, in order for them to train and, and, and be able to carry on their life and be a professional athlete. Uh, and, and the sponsor needs the fan because they're the ones who are, you know, buying the product that allows the sponsor to sponsor the athletes. So if, if you do anything to mess up that cycle, um, you know, that, that's when things become a problem. And so in the swimsuit case, um, you know, they, they felt like, oh, the, the fans were, re, you know, rejecting swimming because they felt like it was being too far off. And so then they put this, put these uh, rules in place, you know, and, and perhaps the, you know, the, 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 the swimsuit industry would argue without enough input from the swimsuit industry on that process. The virtuous cycle between the sponsor, the fans, and the athlete. It's all a delicate balance. One can't outpace the other, or the balance will be thrown off. And from one viewpoint, the sponsor is the most volatile element. Improvements in technology can be quickly adapted to sporting goods. And sometimes, when the advancements come too fast and furious, equipment gets blamed as ruining the purity of the game or the pursuit of the athlete. It's called technological doping, and it can be an easy scapegoat. Let's say, okay, well, you know, technology is ruining sport, you know, or sports equipment, let's, let's put it that way. Sports equipment, the use of high-tech sports equipment is ruining sport. I don't, you know, I don't care what sport we're talking about. Let's just say sport in general, right? And it's like, well, okay, so let's say we take the high-tech equipment away and we roll that back to the 1930s, whatever they were using in the 1930s, okay? Well, so are we also going to roll back our understanding of physiology and nutrition and human performance and biomechanics and kinematics and all these other technical disciplines and coaching and psychology. Uh, are we going to roll all that back to the 1930s too? I don't think so. Um, you know, and I think in the broader context of thing, you know, all of technology and all of science has, has progressed and continues to progress and will continue to progress 
uh, forever and ever and ever on this. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, it becomes, you know, equipment is easier to point at because, you know, you can look at it and you can see it and, you know, it's, it's measurable and, uh, and rules and regulations do belong there. Uh, no question about it. But I think the idea of just throwing up your hands and saying, oh, technology and science is ruining sport. Uh, it's a big, big uh, discussion. So today we're going to have that discussion. On this episode, we're looking at the evolution of sports equipment. In its modern form, it coincides not only with technological revolutions, but social ones as well. As Title IX ushered in a new era of women's participation, the industry had to stay abreast of a new market. I'm talking, of course, about the one piece of equipment that holds everything together, the sports bra. Most improvements in equipment don't come with as much controversy as the Speedo LZR Racer. Take, for instance, the golf club. Actually, the golf the golf club is quite an easy one to chat about because um, organizations like the PGA and other places track information on this uh, over the years. And so there's been historical evidence of the changes in performance of the golf club over the years. Um, and it's uh, you, you can track it back and basically follow the uh, follow the transition of materials used in, in club construction, um, and see that there's pretty marked jumps in the uh, driving distance and driving accuracy of the clubs. So as we've gone per to persimmon uh, from the old persimmon wood clubs to uh, the, the oversized steel and then eventually composite drivers, uh, each of those technology advances have seen fairly substantial uh, jumps in driving distance as well as uh, shot accuracy for uh, players on the PGA Pro Tour. Um, obviously a lot of these technologies, the interesting thing about golf is a lot of these technologies in the clubs uh, help the uh, help the pro golfer, uh, perhaps a larger percentage more than the um, than the amateur golfer, but nonetheless it's, it's had an effect across uh, all, all categories of players. The sporting goods industry is also a quick and early adopter of new materials and technology. And this history is a shining example of how basic core sciences are worthy of continued research and study. While today much of that research is done in the private market, government research has played a major role. For instance, rubber factories that needed new markets after wartime demand fell off quickly turned to bicycles. There's a synergy between what basic materials are invented or improved and the quality of sporting goods. So over the history of the sports industry, uh, certainly in the earlier days, uh, you know, and even maybe up to 10 or so years ago, uh, I would say that most of the drivers have been external for new materials. So, you know, the new materials have been developed by companies uh, with larger industry research budgets um, that can really do core material science or core material development research and development and, and uh, bigger applications. And I mentioned carbon fiber, for example. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned the rubber from, from, from back in the 1920s or 30s and certainly the carbon fiber fibers coming up in the, in the 1980s and back at the end of the Cold War, for example, um, they, the, the U.S. government declassified a lot, of, uh, a lot of work that was done over the years and a lot of that work uh, was in advanced materials and so suddenly those advanced materials were available for applications in consumer market spaces and <clears throat> things like carbon fiber, for example, uh, uh, suddenly became of interest to the sports industry and of interest to the makers of the carbon fiber because they needed a new industry to sell to. Sports, in a lot of cases uh, over the years, have certainly been a good early adopter 
of new technology and new materials. They're looking for ways to improve performance all the time. Uh, they don't have a regulatory hurdle like, uh, say, the FDA for medical devices and things like that. So they can be a, qu a, a quick uh, adopter of these new technologies and, and uh, quickly and you know, for relatively low cost, put product out in the marketplace and, and, um, and see how they perform and, and see if they're adapted and, and adopted by the user community. Some of this technology has become so commonplace, you might not even realize that its origins were for sports and hardcore athletes. You know, we've seen uh, technology developed for sports apparel that are now making their way into to casual streetwear. And, and not just because people are wearing you know, running shoes for casual streetwear, but I mean actually the materials and processes and, and concepts around you know, moisture management and thermal management and things like that are, are making it into, uh, into a lot of products, uh, even, you know, even dress clothes and suits and, and those kind of things. So we're seeing you know, that kind of technology push its way back into uh, other, other applications now. Here's a piece of sports equipment that is so foundational, you could forget it ever needed to be invented in the first place. The sports bra. And she said, okay, so, but what do you do for a bra? It's so uncomfortable. And I laughed and said, yeah, I know, it really is. You know, it's just a terrible problem. She said, you know, why isn't there a jockstrap for women? And we just laughed uproariously. We thought that was so funny. That's Lisa Lindahl speaking to NPR's Only a Game last month. She's the woman who invented the sports bra along with her friend Polly Smith. She's complaining to her sister about the discomfort of running without a bra after both had taken up the jogging craze of the 1970s. Polly was a costume designer, but their original prototypes weren't making the cut. Until Lisa's husband one day came down the stairs wearing a jockstrap on his chest saying, you know, hey, ladies, here's your jock bra, ha, ha, ha. So I took it off of him and pulled it down over my own chest because I had to be part of the funny, ha, ha, ha. And the minute I did it, I looked at Polly and I said, you know what? This has potential. The joke was actually a good idea. The next day, Lisa and Polly sewed two jock straps together, turning the leg bands into back straps and the waistband into a chest band. The rest, as they say, is history. Through a series of mergers and acquisitions, the company that Lisa originally started, Jogbra, became known as the Champion brand and today is part of the Haynes family. And now I want to introduce you to another critical player in bringing the sports bra to the mass market. Her name is Lajean Lawson, and she's been an evangelist for this simple idea since its invention in 1977. She's a design and market consultant, a lifelong athlete, pre-Title IX, we might add, and she's got a master's degree in clothing and textiles, plus a PhD in exercise science. She calls the sports bra an instrument of freedom. What is so unique within women's athletic apparel about the sports bra, it's basically the only thing that we wear that men don't wear. Um, with the ad advent of Title IX, a lot more girls having the opportunities to do sports in schools, and uh, also women jumping into the running craze, which obviously I did that as well. We needed ways to support our breasts. Um, women's breasts, they're highly innervated. They are made of soft, elastic tissue. They tend to move around a lot. And you know, when we run and our feet strike the ground, we can produce 
ground reaction forces coming back up through the body and through our breasts up to two to three times our body weight. So the potential for pain because of the innervation in the breast and for motion, if you're out there kicking it hard, was really great. So we had Title IX in 1972 sort of opening much larger doors to opportunity, which was great. We had Jog Bra starting in 1977 as really the first major sports bra company in the US. So what we had here was legislation that produced a lot more women that needed bras, needed sports bras to be able to exercise in comfort and high level of performance. And then you had companies like Jog Bra that were providing the sports bra to these women. It was very synergistic. The numbers of women drove growth in the sports bra market and having great product that allowed you to participate uh, meant that more women were going to be able to get out there and do it very comfortably. This idea of women's participation seems elementary nowadays, but it wasn't so long ago that the sports bra, perhaps the most basic enabler of women's participation in sports, was villainized. When I received my first research grant uh, at Utah State University with a co-researcher, Dr. Le Dina Lawrenson, uh, we actually received state money to, to analyze sports bra motion. At that time, getting state money, at some point it became public that state funds were going to study breast motion. And me and, and Dina, my co-researcher, were awarded the state equivalent of the Proxmire Golden Fleece Award for worst misuse of state funds that we were studying breast motion and sports bras. I had a letter from a physical therapist at that time who got wind, who told me, again, this is a waste of money. Uh, everyone knows that breasts bounce and all you need to do is go to a high school track and watch the girls running around to know that breasts bounce. So what were we doing? Did you catch that? Lejean's research was deemed a waste of state-funded money. The study of women's health and motion was wasteful. But this idea is baked into our historical view of women as the weaker sex and women's exercise as a specific threat to their reproductive abilities, aka too much jostling of the uterus and breasts. Lejean told me that in her research, these attitudes date back to the first Olympics in 776 BC, when women were not only forbidden from participating, but even from spectating. Progress was slow coming. From a health point of view, back in uh, the 19th century, 1837, there was a book, Exercises for Ladies, that argued against horseback riding because it was felt the impact on their lower bodies would make it difficult to perform um, in my source. It was uh, unspecified um, female tasks. So you could injure probably your reproductive organs that way. Going back into the 20th century, uh, 1915, finally the Amateur Athletic Union, the AAU, decided that women could swim competitively uh, because it was not considered to be healthy, as long as they wore knee-length suits of thick black wool. Uh, we had, uh, as recently as 1972, when Title IX, which is a piece of legislation mandating equal, equal opportunity in sport that we talked a bit about earlier, the NC2A actually spent about $300,000 lobbying against it because they felt that women 
should not be in sports. Um, I think it was only the 1984 Olympics, which uh, the women's marathon was won by Joan Benoit Samuelson, that women could run longer than 400 meters. Again, there was this feeling that our bodies weren't up to it. Unlike much of sports equipment, where progress is only limited by technological capabilities, the sports bra was up against traditional notions of where women belonged and what they were capable of. It was an invention whose leap forward was not universally applauded. And so it not only required a shift in societal attitudes, but also some serious science to back it up. I can say unequivocally that um, there is no scientific evidence either that the motion produced from the ground reaction forces that create breast bounce. Breast bounce um, is not going to predispose you to breast cancer, other breast conditions. The multiple, multiple benefits that we get from exercise with regard to cancer, heart disease, obesity, diabetes, uh, high blood pressure, everything we can think of, the benefits are so strong the other 23 hours of the day that it, it just, I don't know, it's, um, it wouldn't be a good trade-off to to stop exercising and stop wearing sports bras uh, because you were worried about that. The really wonderful thing about the sports bra is that it not only enabled women to exercise comfortably, but unlike so much else in sports, it's an idea entirely created and executed by women. It's avoided many of the usual pitfalls whereby resources for women's sports are an afterthought. We have seen many companies started by women, such as Jog Bra slash Champion, uh, also Title IX on the retail side, Moving Comfort. We have, so, so we have women who specifically started companies from the perspective of, hey, you know, we girls and women deserve our own stuff. We have women at the highest level who advocate for us to have our own gear. There has been this influence where athletic gear has been stylish, that has also made it possible, going back back to the athletic companies, for them to elevate the, the, the look and the feel and the design of their products to where we have stuff that is, I mean, it's our style. It's, it's what we choose to wear as a woman from a style point of view, and yet also extremely functional. So I really think that we have gotten, um, we've gotten ahead of the gender gap on that to where we really do have our own stuff that we love. Until my conversation with LaJean, I'll admit I was somewhat a skeptic of the athleisure trend. It seemed like it diluted the seriousness many women put into their health and exercise by just making it another outfit that we should buy. But I realize now that this is a limited view. The popularity of athleisure has actually forced companies to take women's sports gear more seriously. I'll let LaJean explain. And when athleisure first became popular, largely we saw consumers going to the major brands like Champion, Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, and buying stuff that looked sporty because it was cool. And that benefited all of those labels. But then sort of then after consumers sort of got hooked on that look and the idea that your workout gear could also be really stylish, it's put more pressure back on um, athletic apparel companies to keep style in their products. And because style is an outward expression of our inward selves, there's a balance between femininity and function. In LaJean's work, she found a really interesting example where the best functional equipment was not necessarily what women chose. She noticed that women were choosing sports bras that included padding and shaping, materials that make you bulkier, sweatier, and can feel heavier. So what was the trade-off here? 
I did a, a focus group uh, in depth. I call them uh, my ta tees that I do for Champion, specifically probing that. Why are women picking it? Why are they wearing it? And uh, it was interesting because one of the issues women have with their sports bras is they don't like their nipples to show. During exercise, um, and especially cooling off after exercise because of, of the nerves within the nipple, the sweat, all of that, just automatic responses, there's more of that. So I, I found that that there are these the group of women who like the padding and shaping to disguise, to be more modest, to not be noticed. But I also found... Um, a whole uh, other group that is like, you know what? I do want enhancement. I'm a woman. I have breasts. I don't want to lose those breasts when I'm working out. I had a, uh, a participant who at that time was training for the women's Olympic marathon trials. And uh, so I asked her, I, I said, well, surely when you race, you strip down to the lightest, thinnest sports bra and you get away from your padded ones. And she said, no. When I race, even more so, I feel like I'm really in public. I'm out there. I like to have um, a little something be that shapes me a little bit and that goes between my nipple and what everyone can see. And I think it's also kind of coming around full circle where women are saying, yes, I care about what my sports bra does. But at the end of the day, I still like being a woman. That's, that is my, my identity. So how I look in my sports bra becomes important. It's about choice. Do you want something fully functional? It's there. Do you want something that accentuates instead of hides your femininity? It's there. Do you want both at the same time? By Regina George, it's there. The rising tide of athleisure lifts all ships. While the availability of women's workout gear is important, This podcast would be remiss if we didn't also address who makes it. Often we see that products intended for a niche audience are protected from larger trends of inequality in business and manufacturing so long as they stay niche. And lol, a sports bra meant for half the population was once seen as niche. But now that women's athletic clothing is a major industry, have its roots as a woman-driven business been maintained? What is really interesting to me about the women's sport movement, you know, since the 70s, since Title IX, um, that all came, sort of came out as the running boom was going on and other things, is that the sports bra was a purely female piece of equipment. Men didn't have to wear it. They didn't really care about it, whatever. So almost from the get-go in the modern sports era, because of the need for a sports bra, there was interest by women in designing our gear. Uh, and uh, some athletic brands that took longer than others, brands that had been established and really catering more to men, uh, may have taken them a little bit longer. But it was the launching of companies like Jog Bra, Moving Comfort, Title IX, that were started by women saying, hey, you know, this is by women for women. It has not that we have not always seen women at the higher levels of the major athletic brands in the in the you know the CEO level positions or upper level management but again a lot of that has changed over the years the companies that might have been started as a sports bra company began to listen to what other kinds of things that women needed and wanted specifically for their bodies and the kinds of activities that they were doing Sports apparel is an industry at the cross-section of a lot of spaces that used to be exclusively male, sports, science, and business. And sometimes companies could be slow on the uptake. 
But this isn't necessarily intentional. It just takes time to break down long-held notions about what's popular and what will sell. You know, I think it's uh, it, it's a little bit sport dependent, and and you know the shrink it and pink it thing. I think is still uh, a prevailing problem uh, out there. Um, but from um, you know, but looking at it through a business lens, right? Um, a lot of times the uh, the introduction of new technologies have got to be um, you know when you're looking at price points and the cost for developing new technologies, you know, you've got to figure out where your markets are, right? And and in some cases, and I'm not I'm not justifying this as the right way to do it. I'm just saying you know from a business standpoint. You know, you've got to you've got to justify new products and new development um, on cost and, and particular return on investment and those kind of things. And a lot of times, you know, it's the bigger market is is are the men. Um, I, it's becoming less and less all the time. I think that you know, um, you know, we as engineers and scientists and, and sports scientists realize now that women aren't just small men. Uh, you know, and less less strong or shorter or whatever you know whatever that metric is, right? And and realize that wow, just you know, making it smaller isn't necessarily the right uh, doesn't necessarily end up with the right performance metric. And and looking at it a little bit, a lot more holistically than used to be done, uh, even you know even a decade ago. You know, and from the manufacturer's point of view, it, it too often it comes back to, uh, you know, to the numbers. Uh, what is the quantity? If you know, we know that we have a manufacturer where we can do large volumes of boys' stuff, and we get discounts when we do high volumes. So, is there the the will by a manufacturer to say, you know what, if I make better equipment for women, maybe more girls and women will get involved, and maybe that's white space for me that I can grow if if I can help more people get into the sport that I make equipment for. So it is very synergistic and it does require vision. So one thing I would say is that, um, you know, I don't do just sport tech work. I've done technology work in a lot of other industries as well. And I would, argue, I, I would say probably in, uh, the, I would say probably that the sports industry has a higher percentage of women in technical and design roles in a lot of other industries that I've worked in. Uh, which so that's a good thing, right? Uh, it do, does that represent the market the percentage balance? Eh, I don't know. You know, I I, uh, I I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I would say that that certainly in the sports industry, uh, the, the number of influencers that are developing and designing product that are women are having you know marketing product that are women is quite high compared to a lot of other industries. If you haven't picked up on it already, Lejean and Kim emphasize repeatedly the importance of Title IX beyond participation. It helped to create a whole new space in the sports manufacturing industry. That initial piece of legislation has had a tremendous trickle-down effect. We've made a lot of progress and what really helps progress on the women's side is as we develop levels of playing such as say now we have pro basketball, we have pro soccer, where we have players who are playing at a very high level who begin to demand. And now there's a there's a, a pro level or even a, a collegiate level where there's the opportunity to sell uh, larger numbers of equipment. That sort of goes back, you know, with Title IX and the sports bra. We needed more players in order to make it financially uh, feasible. Having the professional or the high, higher level opportunities and that visibility then creates the the synergistic market opportunities, and there are you know then then the advancements come. In in general, the sports product and the sports industry is a passion industry, right? So people that are in that industry are typically passionate about sports and sport products uh, and developing sport products. And you know, for better or for worse, a lot of times the industry, you know, a mechanical engineer or a you know scientist or whatever you know trade profession you might look at. Uh, will probably make less money working in the sports industry than they would in 
you know, medical devices, for example, right? And so uh, I think uh, Title IX has helped that simply because uh, it, it's given women uh, a better ac chance to access and, and, and compete in sports and, and, you know, continue to develop that passion and, you know, make it a lifelong passion um, uh, and then, you know, start looking towards careers on that. So what's next? The industry has learned that personalization sells. Men and women have different needs when it comes to equipment, and providing for those differences is big business. But personalization can get even more, well, personal. One of the things that I see is, and this comes back to the, the technology, is increasingly more things that fit as a second skin that don't impede free motion, but that are much more uh, dynamic in terms of supporting our, our muscle motion, helping to return uh, blood back to the heart, oxygenation. I see, I see sort of dynamic uh, second skin uh, garments. I also, uh, an area that I consult and work and have done stuff, including products that are for the astronauts, is in wearable electronic medical technology. So uh, wearable technology is, is a big interest of mine. The other thing that I think is, is interesting and we're seeing a, a lot of focus on now um, is, is uh, uh, advanced manufacturing technologies. You know, we're seeing 3D printed shoes come out and, you know, kind of mass customization and, and a lot of these kind of things coming up. And I think that that's, that's going to be a drive coming in the next few years. We're going to see a lot of focus on manufacturing. Um, how do you get your manufacturing going uh, and, and manufacture products close to the, closer to the end users? Um, and, um, you know, modifying the supply chains and things like that to, to make those kind of things happen. And, and those are going to be some interesting challenges I think we're going to see people addressing in the future. As we've seen, progress in equipment can push us up against our boundaries. Whether we recognize when we've gone too far, like in the LZR racer controversy, or when we have much farther left to go, like the story of the sports bra, it's important to consider who progress benefits and who is making those calls. But whatever is next, you can bet it will include women. Thanks very much to Lejean and Kim for joining the show. Remember to check out the website, nybfsports.com, to find old episodes and sign up for the newsletter. Plus, you can follow the show on Twitter, that's at NYBF Sports, or give us a like on Facebook at Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. In the meantime, grab your swimsuits, sports bras, or whatever your preferred gear, and get out there. Good game, listeners. 